In one fell swoop, the Court of Federal Claims upended two major government-wide acquisition contracts from the General Services Administration. With it went nearly five years of effort to change the culture of federal contracting. The court ruled that GSA's decision not to use price as an evaluation factor for the Polaris small business contract was inappropriate. This decision also threw a wrench into the Oasis Plus acquisition strategy. Federal News Network's executive editor, Jason Miller, joins me now with more on the story. Jason, let's start with the court ruling in the protest of Polaris Small Business GWAC. What exactly was this all about? There's two focus areas in the protest, and this was a protest by a company called SH Synergy and VH. VCH Partners. They are a joint venture. They're a mentor-protege. They did a couple areas. First, they protested the mentor-protege joint venture requirements that GSA outlined. And in fact, the court ruled some, some for them, some against them. This has been a common problem across several different multiple award government-wide acquisition type contracts. And I'm actually not going to go too far into it, Tom. Folks can read the entire 75-page decision by the Court of Federal Claims on federalnewsnetwork.com. What they also protested, however, was the use of something called the Section 876 Authority. This is something Congress gave GSA in 2018 in the Defense Authorization Bill that lets GSA not have price as an evaluation factor for these large multiple war contracts. I wrote about this. A lot of folks talked about this. This was a celebration of effort of multiple years from industry and government to really change the way agencies do government-wide acquisition contract and government-wide multiple award contracts like Oasis Plus, like Polaris. Right. That was really a modernization because these are dynamic contracts and they are task order-based and therefore some fixed price for the duration made no sense. Or even this idea of what's going to cost you to do this service today may not cost you tomorrow to do the same service. And really the, the importance here is price at the task order level. That's where the, the rubber hits the road. And what the court said was GSA's interpretation of this law was too broad. And the way they applied it to the Polaris contract was too broad. The, basically, they said Congress said you can only use this authority when you're looking at task orders or contracts that are really based on hourly rates. So we're talking about labor hour type contracts, time and material type contracts, even cost reimbursement type contracts, but, and this is key here, not firm fixed price contracts. And GSA was allowing under Oasis and under Polaris specifically to use firm fixed price contracts and task orders. And the court said, no, that's too far. We're not, you can't do that. So what this ended up doing was the court said to GSA, you you cannot make awards under Polaris. You cannot move forward until you fix this piece of Polaris. They also talked about some, again, mental protege fixes that are needed too. So does that suspend Polaris then? What comes next? GSA cannot make awards under Polaris. Period. So that just stops right there. GSA has got to take corrective action. What that corrective action is going to look like is unclear. They just got the decision was released by the Court of Federal Claims in the last week or so. So they're still kind of okay, what does this mean? How does this work? How do we go forward? I've talked to several procurement experts and they say this is really bad for Polaris. Emily Murphy, the former GSA administrator, uh, procurement expert, told me, if you think about what happened with the Alliance small business contract, the, what Polaris was trying to replace, that got upheld by similar protests, not on the use of 876, but just generally. And eventually GSA, and she had to make that decision to cancel Alliance small business because the time it took. If you look at the same timeline, Polaris is starting to reach some some long legs here. It's, yeah. They started in 2018. They released the RFP in 2022. By the time they fix this, it could be 2024. At what point does the Polaris contract go, oh, this just doesn't meet our needs anymore? Sure. And that would mean eight years without a small business, broad-based small business GWAC. Well, could GSA appeal on the grounds of 876 as what Congress intended? And there's nothing in the language that says you shall not 
necessarily use price evaluation except in this type of deal. That wasn't in the 876 language. The court actually ruled that that Congress was very specific in that 876 language, and that's why it's based on hourly rates. And I think that's the key phrase here. And GSA doesn't argue that. But what they are arguing, and and again, in the court decision, they'll do this much better. Lawyers can do this much better than I will. (laughs) They they do talk about this idea that under a firm fixed price task order type contract, there are hourly rates pieces. Sure. Because you're understanding, okay, I'm buying this person. There's a reason for the price. For so long, right. We think this project will take 20 hours or 40 hours at this rate, and this here's how we're getting to our firm fixed price. The court said, no, that's not what they mean. So GSA is, is right now where to go next with Polaris, how to fix it. And this has a snowball effect to the Oasis Plus contract. In fact, Tiffany Hickson, who's leading the Oasis effort, spoke at the Coalition for Government Procurement contract just the other day, and she said, we have to add price as an evaluation factor to Oasis Plus. That's actually going to delay the RF, the final RFP. So they, she was hoping to get it out at the end of April, early May. Now she's saying it could be another month or more. And it's also going to change the way they do evaluations more broadly because they were using that self-scoring system and now price is a factor. Tom, I think that's the bigger issue here. Not that Polaris is delayed. That's a bad thing for sure. Not that Oasis has to change their, their strategy. The, there's a snowball effect more broadly across the entire acquisition community because of this ruling. So people see it as a sea change. Absolutely, it's a sea change and not a good one at that. Uh, in fact, I talked to Eric Crucius, a procurement lawyer at Holland Knight, and he said, listen, on one hand, I love the fact that this judge was very bold. On the other hand, this judge's boldness is causing major waves in the procurement community that is going to really have a big effect on every agency, uh, every contract, whether, again, it's Oasis Plus or could be NITAC's future contracts. It could be Soup6, who's planning to take a very similar approach around not using price as a valuation factor. All these contracts will now be changed. I also spoke with Mike Pullen, a vice president of CGI Federal for Strategic Operations, and he said, listen, this just doesn't make sense because we've the industry, the government has really pushed hard not to have price at the task order level. And the, the long-term effect is higher costs to bid, more time it takes to do evaluations, and in the end, they're not getting anything better because of having to use price as a valuation factor. And it's interesting that this lawyer, this company, decided to make this case when no other lawyer slash company protested this through Astro, which is a contract GSA used 876 first for, and now most of Polaris. So it's interesting that they went down this path. And what's even more fascinating, Tom, is that, <laughs> and this Emily Murphy pointed this out, the company who protested may not even get on now, even though they won their protest. Right. They could just be losing out on other factors besides that uh, particular objection. They're causing objection. Big, big challenges and big heartache now across the entire acquisition community. Well, do people think there's a statutory fix? Could they rewrite 876 in the next round of the NDAA and say, no, we meant to have fixed price contracts as part of this non-evaluation factor? That is the most logical way to get past this. Now, will Congress cooperate? The NDAA is going to be marked up at the end of May. It's short time. You have to get four committees to agree to this, both the House and Senate's Armed Services Committees, as well as the House Oversight and Accountability Committee, as well as the Senate Government Affairs Homeland Security Committee. And I think Emily Murphy, who worked on the Hill for several years and helped you know, develop these types of provisions, says that's going to be a tough haul. And GSA has got to write the legislative proposal on top of it to get it to them. So she says, yes, that would be an easy technical, an easy, quote unquote, technical amendment. Whether it can happen in this short period of time is unclear. And in the meantime, GSA has got to move forward with Oasis, got to move forward with Polaris, and to the detriment of the 
broader small business community. Yeah, some real sand in the gears in the meantime. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. As always, your encyclopedic knowledge of the details is what drives us all here. Be sure to check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that 
Alabama environment. What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. 
if you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of the I, I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.